0: Welcome to Sip and Spin with Luke and Andy.
1: Hey everybody, welcome to episode 7 of Sip and Spin with Luke and Andy. Uh, we're excited here uh, that we are finally on episode seven. Seems like it's been a long time coming, <laughs> uh, and and uh, we're really excited too that this is our first episode that we have a guest, is which true. is uh, also exciting. Yeah. Um, so uh, we're going to be talking about this week. We're going to be talking about Super Unknown by Soundgarden, which mm. uh, is a, is a great album,
2: fantastic album, nineteen
1: ninety four. Yep, two uh, two weird, uh, weirdly conjoined nouns for the band name <laughs> and the uh, album title, which is strange. Um, but a fantastic album. Is yeah. it grunge?
2: It, yeah, and well, we'll
1: talk, <laughs> we'll talk about. Yeah, it.
2: we'll talk about that later. It is
1: and it isn't. It is, and it isn't. Um, so and we'll see what our guest has to say about that. That's we're gonna spring that one on them going to find out what he thinks is it grunge we're going to play a little game we're going to spin a wheel and it's going to be like is it grunge um but first the sip of the sip and spin the sip portion Ooh, Mm -hmm. i'm thirsty
2: let me take a take a sip right now actually
1: i forgot to say i'm andy by the way and with me is always my best friend luke who is i think i've decided sip
2: i'm the sip portion
1: Yes. We, 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 we debated this last week. Who was Sip and who was Spin? And I think you are Sip.
2: Did I forget that? Did that happen?
1: It did happen.
2: I don't think I drank that much.
1: <laughs> it did happen. Okay. I said,
2: yeah, all
1: right. uh, it, go back and listen to our Batman 89 episode from last week, everybody. Stop. Pause this one and go back and listen to the, the whole thing, the whole hour and a half. Oh, God. And come back where we're here at two minutes and two seconds and, and, and let us know. Um, so yeah, your sip and sip. and I, I want to hear the lowdown on the sip this week.
2: All right. Yeah. So, um, you know, up until now, everything I've done for cocktails has been, uh, stirred drinks, spirit forward. Um, and I was like, you know what? I need, I need some juice. I need to juice this up. Juice it up, baby. I <laughs> need, need to add, add some citrus. So, uh, <laughs> so I was like, you know what? I don't know how I, I, I came to this, but um, I started thinking about uh, the the album cover of Superunknown. It's it's black and red and orange, and um, for some reason, it just made me think of uh, uh, Campari, which is a which is a bright orangish reddish uh, bitter liqueur, and um, something that I had not used in a cocktail yet up until now. And uh, I thought, well, there, there there's that portion of it. And then I was like, you know, then I kind of want some kind of want something smoky to to add to it. And uh, so it's like mezcal would be would be great. And if you don't know mm. what mezcal is. Um, I do. If, do you? All right. Oh, well, yeah. It's uh yeah, it's basically like a smoky tequila. So it's an agave based spirit, um, but they cook it. Like in underground little ovens or something, I believe. Hobbit holes. Hobbit holes. There it is, and <laughs> uh, and so it just creates this nice earthy, uh, smoky kind of flavor. Uh, so I knew I wanted to incorporate mezcal as well, and then I also have a bottle that I don't use very often. Uh, it's kind of an obscure bottle, but it's called uh, it's an ancho chili
1: pepper liquor. Yeah, Nice. I actually just bought a bunch of dried chilies from Amazon and made uh chili paste with them and oh. ancho with some of them. And I, and I looked up, can I'm, I'm wondering to myself, can I make chili liqueur at home? Oh yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. I start. think you, I think you really just steep it in either like a, a white vodka rum or, or a vodka. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: yeah. yeah. That'd be, there you go. Save yourself
1: uh 30 bucks or something. I think the bottle is. <laughs> It only Um, takes, it it only takes 12 hours to make, (laughs) save yourself, save yourself 20
2: bucks. (laughs) Um, um, But anyways, so I, I kind of started thinking of these little, these, these, you know, ingredients that I wanted to incorporate and then it kind of made me, kind of made me think of a, of a classic, uh, tiki cocktail that already existed called a jungle bird. Uh,
1: so that's a good cocktail too. Have you had one?
2: I have nice. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's it's right. I mean, now it's considered like like a pretty, pretty classic tiki drink. So it's pretty well yeah. known. Um, but unlike, you know, last episodes, we, you know, last few episodes, we talked about Manhattan and uh, Sazerac. And both of those go way back to the 1800s, late 1800s. Mm-hmm. This one's uh, about 100 years later. In the 1970s so this one there's less uh confusion about its origins but this so this one has a pretty distinct uh, or pretty def- definite uh history behind it and it was created in 1973 by uh jeffrey ong at the aviary bar in Ooh. the kuala lumpur hilton hotel um
1: and- I have been to Kuala Lumpur and it is <laughs> I've been nice. to
2: that uh, <laughs>
1: I, I have sta- I am a gold member.
2: <laughs> um yeah, so it, it actually it was it was created there as a welcoming drink. Uh in, in this hotel holy car. shit. Going to the hotel and it's like,
1: hello, here's your
2: jungle bird. <laughs> in a giant like bird shaped tiki mug. Yeah, twenty-two um, ounce. <laughs> but um yeah, so it wasn't until years later in the late 80s that it made its kind of debut in, in a recipe book uh, called The New American Bartender's Guide. And then an, another, you know, uh, 10, 12 years later, it, uh, it was cataloged in. And this guy, is, this guy's name is B, Jeff Beachbumberry. <laughs> you could do a whole episode on the shit, on the shit that this guy's done for the cocktail world, particularly uh, Tiki. Um, nice. Yeah, this guy, like, basically, because I mean, I won't even go into it because it's it, it's extensive. But tiki drinks originated in the 1930s. And they were really popular. And then they died off in the like, late 60s, early 70s, I think. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then it, it, he had a big part to play in its kind of revival. Um, and he, he like went back and like found bartenders that worked at these bars back in the in like the 40s. And he was able to like piece together these like recipes that had been kept secret for all these years. It's crazy. That's Um, great. Yeah. But um, so he cataloged it in in one of his books um, called Intoxica. And uh, yeah, so I mean, it took like several decades um, from from its birth in 1973. you know, it took several decades to really kind of gain notoriety throughout the world um, because it was really popular in Malaysia for a long time. But now it's considered like a, a, a tiki staple, really. So mm. um, so I kind of I took that 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 template for that recipe, um, which is this is the original Jungle Bird. It's an ounce and a half of dark rum or Jamaican rum, uh, three quarter ounces of Campari, which is that uh bittersweet, uh, kind Mm -hmm. of like citrus liqueur, ounce and a half of Mm -hmm. pineapple juice, half ounce of lime juice, and then half ounce of uh, uh, simple syrup or a demerara sugar syrup. Um, So I took that template and the cocktail I made for this week's episode is I I call it, I'm calling it summer stench. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And uh, so I kept the ounce and a half of rum and then I added an additional half ounce of Mezcal. Um, I, I kept the Campari, but instead of Campari, I used uh, a liqueur called Bruto Americano. And Bruto Americano is essentially, it's essentially Campari. It's an American version of Campari made by okay. a distillery in California uh, called St. George. and. I don't know. If, if you have a bottle of Campari and you're running low, the next time you need to, re, when you need to replace it, get a bottle of Bruto Americano instead. Uh, I I like it way more than Campari. You uh, make a Negroni with it? Yep. Yeah. You can use Bruto Americano in place of any any cocktail that calls for Campari. You can use Bruto Americano in place of it. Um, and it's it's fantastic. It's, it's just, uh, to me, it just tastes more... It's just more interesting, more complex, more yeah. authentic. Um, Campari is artificially colored. It has that really bright orange-red. Um, right, red, and, yeah. Uh, Bruto Americano, actually, it's kind of disturbing, but they use, like, the crushed exoskeleton of, like, I can't remember the type of beetle that it is to give Ooh. it the color. Um, now so if, I want it even more. <laughs> so if you're a vegan or vegetarian, you're probably going to want to uh, skip the Bruto Americano. But
1: Beetlejuice, beetle Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. <laughs>
2: that's a future episode yes Um, so after that so if you if you have campari you can use that if you have bruto americano or you want to get that you can use that um and then i added to the recipe two-thirds an ounce of uh the ancho reyes the chili liqueur nice uh an ounce of pineapple juice so i cut the pineapple juice a little bit to have it a little more spirit forward kept the lime juice the same at half an ounce and then for the syrup I split it, I split the half ounce of syrup between a demerara syrup and a pineapple syrup that I made, mm. um, which that's a whole other thing we can get into in the future, making, oh, your, own, yeah. making your own syrups in your own house, at your house. Uh, it's really easy, it's cheap, um, doing syrup infusions and stuff like that. So uh, basically like, so pineapple syrup, if you wanna make that for cocktails or whatever, um, it's just equal parts pineapple juice and syrup, that's it. So it's super easy. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's my cocktail. So, ounce nice. and a half of ounce and a half of darker Jamaican rum, half ounce of mezcal, three quarter ounces of Bruto Americano or Campari, two thirds ounce of Ancho Reyes chili liqueur, ounce of pineapple, half ounce of lime, and half ounce of syrup. Any any combination of syrup you want to use.
1: Sounds if you don't delicious. Have,
2: yeah, if you don't have some of those ingredients, which I understand some of them are a little uh, more obscure, um, you can always make the original Jungle Bird. That's great too.
1: Yeah. And I, all your recipes, we, we write out and post on Instagram and Facebook yep. too. So feel free to, to follow us, subscribe, check that out. I'm so, not, I'm not whoring myself out for likes here. I'm not even on social media, but if you want to make a good cocktail, you can look up the recipe.
2: Yep. Every week when we post, uh, we'll post a new, a new thing on uh, Instagram when a new episode comes out and we'll have the the recipe for the, for the episode right there.
1: The pictures are amazing too. They make me thirsty mm. every time. Thank you, sir. Yeah. I, especially this one. This one was like, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of a, of a Tiki. I'm a huge fan of a, of a little bit of fruit in my cocktail knowing yeah. that it's got the ancho chilies in there too is, right. is great. And so, you know, you, the picture you posted with it, just that little frosted look with a little bit of uh you know, fruit juice and, and, and uh the nice little garnish you got on there Ooh, oh man, that's right. got the my, garnish forgot Got my taste buds going <laughs> the garnish yeah so um for this one i garnished
2: it with a couple uh pineapple fronds which are purely you know aesthetic um but i also had some rosemary in, in my fridge mm. and so i put a little clipped a little rosemary sprig on the on the edge of the glass there and that's great because like when you, every time you take a sip Nose gets right to the, to the rosemary and it kind of has that Mm. nice herbal flavor that kind of ties in with the, that the Brudo Americano in particular. Yeah, it's, it's good. Great.
1: To me, it looked like a middle finger, which I thought fit right in with the, uh, (laughs) the the whole fuck you attitude
2: of this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's good. So, so yeah,
2: whip it up at home, whip it up. Sorry, Sipping. just took a big sip. Um, Sipping. so yeah, moving on here from the sip portion, we're gonna get into the spin. Um so spin. <laughs> spin it. Um so for this episode, um, we knew we wanted to bring in a guest at some point. Absolutely. And um, you know, I and I and early on I knew I wanted to do an episode on Super Unknown because it's, you know, it's one of my favorite one of my favorite albums from the nineties.
1: Um, one of my and favorite grunge, like we'll talk about that again, but grunge records. And we don't have many friends. <laughs> so, so the list was relatively small, <laughs> but, um, yeah. So our, our guest tonight,
2: uh, is a, a good friend of mine, uh, Mike, and I've known him for, poof shit. Oh man. Let's see. Going on 13 years, I guess. Holy shit. That, that sounds that's right. It's a long time. That's, um, that's, def,
1: that's, that's definitely right.
2: Yeah. yeah. I have no idea. Um, but uh, me and him have always bonded uh, over music. I, I feel like in particular uh, grunge and, and 90s alternative and stuff like that. So I was like, this is perfect. I know how much he loves his album. So I want to introduce you to my good friend, Mike. Mike, how are hey you guys. doing? Good. 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 Glad to have
0: you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, honored to be the first guest on the yeah, podcast. You should be. Yeah. <laughs> you, you should. listener. <laughs>
2: uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, immediately, like, like honestly, uh, super unknown, Soundgarden, a lot of 90s grunge and alternative bands. To me, like, when I think of them, it's like, so not, I, I think of you.
0: Um, yeah. I... I, I yeah, my, I, full full,
1: full disclosure I do not think of you but I'm glad that Luke does
0: <laughs> yeah we've um, talked about it many times yeah. um, you know I'm a product of that era when it comes to music right. um, I started learning guitar right around that time and all those great mm. bands were coming out in the late 80s early 90s and um, I soaked it up I I just listen to that stuff all the time, and I just love that era. I love those bands still to this day. I'll listen to that stuff. A lot of people outgrow bands they listen to when they were young, but not me because this music is great. I'm you're going to get a biased opinion here. I think it's great (laughs) all the way through. (laughs) It's still great. Everyone should listen to Soundgarden. I I think this
1: is one that we're probably all a little biased towards. Um, yeah, I I I I I don't want to piggyback off your story, but yeah, same here. You know, I I. We talked about how i play guitar and and i probably started around you know 96 97 which was a little bit after super unknown but but yeah uh it's it's hard to look back at that time frame and not be like oh those were some of the guys though you know the, the, that these are some of the things that made me want to learn yeah so I mean,
0: it, it was magical for me because like like i said i had just i had started to learn guitar right around then
2: so was there any uh how did you how did you get introduced in into that kind of that uh, genre of music I guess
0: So for me it was you know when I was like want say in 6th grade I switched schools and um you know I had to my family moved so I was in a new school with a bunch of new kids and um some of them there you know, played instruments and listened to music that I had never heard of before and um you know would let me borrow some of the stuff they had and one of them mm. um had like CDs from uh or tapes i should say cuz i didn't have a CD player yet but tapes of things like early early Alice in chains right so like face oh, yeah. left on tape and i Yo, was like yeah. what is this it was it was just yeah like so far out of what I I would hear because I would listen to like pop radio and stuff in the small town yep. I listened to you know they lived in and they weren't playing uh facelift by Alice in <laughs> Chains you know. Yeah. Later you would hear man in the box more often but not not on the pop radio stations in the little town where I lived. Um, so that's how I got started you know um being introduced to that kind of music but you know that was that was earlier on and when when super unknown came out that was in 1994 and I was 13. Mm-hmm. And I had just started playing guitar. So got a guitar and was trying to learn songs. And actually, the first song I ever learned was a Soundgarden song. It was Outshined, which nice. is off their their Bad Motorfinger album right before yeah. Yeah. Super Unknown. So Great song. I was I was all primed for Super Unknown when it came out. Um, but I still didn't have a CD player. But I listened to it as much as I could. I would tape songs off the radio. Um, I borrowed... Um, tapes from my friends so i could listen to it and i remember all throughout 1994 that it was just everywhere it was all over the radio yeah. it was all over mtv i mean i think they played the black hole sun video like oh, once an hour god. oh and I'm my not god even joking, yeah right i mean it was yeah. it was all the time yeah and and so then you know christmas of that year i got my first cd player and i got super unknown weezer's blue album and pearl gem versus
2: oh yeah all, all great albums that's a good lineup we, we, we will have to do an episode, if not on those bands. Well, there's no sense in doing an episode on Weezer as a band. We would just do the Blue Album. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah right. The Blue
0: Album's the, the one to... The really
2: only, the yeah. one and only. Um, but yeah, going back to, uh, you were talking about like the Black Hole Sun video. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, my I was God. Thinking, I was thinking about that too, because it's like, I mean, really, I mean, I can probably count on one hand, the number of music videos that I really vividly recall from, you know, anywhere during the nineties. And you know, that, that is one of them Uh, obviously like, smells like teen spirit by Nirvana is another Mm -hmm. one um, that I recall just like seeing. And I, I mean, that was pretty, I was, I was a little kid. I mean, I was, you know, 10 years old and I still remember. So, I mean, I didn't know anything about that music at the time. And I, but I still, I mean, I remember watching like those two in, in particular those two videos and uh and just yeah i think it yeah. did something to me <laughs> i think you know what i mean like in a good way. Hole
0: sun, that video was just so strange i think it threw everyone oh my loop. it was so just just so weird and you know they were stretching people's faces right. and they just had all this mm-hmm. psychedelic stuff going right. on and uh yeah, it's tons of airplay
1: it's funny that you, uh, that you were talking about, you know, two things that you mentioned. Uh, first, first one is it's funny that you talked about borrowing albums from your, from your friends, because number one, uh, that doesn't happen anymore.
0: Right. That's not a thing. And,
1: You're like, yeah. What's the
0: tape and why would right. you borrow it?
1: Yeah. And, and, and it's funny because I, I've been, you know, all, all through this week, you know, kind of watching interviews with, with the band, uh, you know, with Soundgarden and, and reading things about them. And, and one of the interviews with Chris Cornell, he was like, you know, I, he was basically saying like, you know, I, I here are some of the albums that I had growing up and some of the things I like to listen to. And he was like, he's like, and I forget what album it was cause he named the album, but he didn't name the band and it was some obscure, not obscure, but it was some album that I didn't know who it was, but he was like, I had like four copies of this album because you know he was young and he was in bands and and you know at the time this is like the the early mid 80s and he was basically people would bring over other other band members would bring over this record to his house these guitar players so that they could listen to it and like learn how to play the guitar to these songs and they'd bring it over and they'd they play it on his, on his, on his record player. And then they would forget it at his house. And so he ended up with like six copies of this album at his <laughs> house. Cause guys kept bringing it over and trying to learn it and then like leaving it there. And so it's, it's funny that you mentioned that. And it was something that I actually heard in an interview with Chris Cornell is like this whole, you know, swapping albums and bringing albums. And the other thing I was going to say is I feel so bad for you <laughs> trying to learn guitar and trying to play, trying to play, uh, you know, uh, guitar and 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 listening to super unknown and being like i'm gonna i'm gonna you know i'm gonna (laughs) learn these songs because holy shit
0: i I will tell you i I, over the course of my life i have learned almost every song on that album i i I even bought when i was kid i bought the um they they used to have these little books of guitar tablature for for specific albums yeah it was the only one i ever bought because it had you know the actual it was written out for every song exactly how you could play it yeah. And I got that book and I I played it over and over again. I think and I, learned, and I learned almost every song. That's great. And
1: how difficult was it to change the tuning on your guitar for every song?
0: Oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. one of the things that I was going to mention about Oh, yeah. You know, it's one of the reasons why I I love the album is you know, they put so much effort into making it sort of, you know, more like art rather than just like yeah. music and they and, they did that by changing the sound of the band quite a bit. When it came to yeah. guitars, right? So they would, you know, use a lot of effects and alternate tunings for sure. And, yeah. you know, there's, there's only, you know, for anyone who's listening who, who plays guitar and understands the guitar tuning, there's a standard tuning of guitar. Each string should have be on a specific note. There's only one song on this album. There's 15 songs. There's one song that's in standard tuning. <laughs> Just one. And the rest are all in these just absurd tunings. I mean, there's a a couple that are in drop D, which is not that crazy, but the other ones are just like out of left field.
1: E E B B B B.
0: (laughs) Right. C G C D G E. (laughs) Like, okay. The only normal one is the E at the bottom guys. Like, what are you doing? But it it, it comes, you know, it, it gives them, you know, a lot of opportunity to make something that sounds sonically different than anything else. Right. Yep. And, um, yeah. That's one of the things I love.
1: They also do that with, they also kind of go in and out of time signatures too. They do. Yeah. Um, which is, which is really interesting. Um, yeah.
2: It's, yeah. I was um, reading that, I was reading that like a lot of that was just unintentional. Yeah. Like, they didn't even yeah. really realize that, that, that they were doing that.
0: Yep. Yeah. Cause they're not, they're not like a um, progressive rock band, right? right they are right. trying to be rush or something like that. <laughs> right. It's just, you know, that, they wrote these weird riffs and it just happened to be in, you know, 15, eight, you know, right. which is, is 15, eight notes per, per bar. Okay. All right. There should, there should be 16, but that's all right. <laughs> you know, so they would just do strange things like that. And um, it ended up sounding great. You yeah, know, they just yeah. didn't think about the math of it.
1: Yeah, and I mean, Yeah. And that's always one of the more complicated things with playing an instrument is, is overthinking it sometimes. What were you going to say, Luke?
2: Oh, um, I was just going to say just, you know, kind of, um, you know, listening to, you know, their previous stuff, their, their stuff before Super Unknown um, and really kind of, I mean, because, I mean, I've, so I kind of have a different um, story to how I kind of got into Soundgarden and, and a lot of other, uh, you know, 90s uh, bands like Nirvana and Alice in Chains and, and Pearl Jam, stuff like that. My, and Blind Melon? And Blind Melon, <laughs> yes. <laughs> save the best for last. Um, and that's
0: uh, spin doctors. <laughs> yes, Ooh.
2: Are you writing these down? Andy? these are future episodes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so, um, yeah, so my, it was kind of different for me. Um, I mean, I was, you know, I mean, I was born in 83. So like, you know, a lot of these albums, you know, I was like, I was 10 years old, 11 years old or younger. And, um, I just wasn't really listening to music. I really wasn't listening to music at all. I mean, I was just, you know, you were just kind of as a kid at that, at that young of an age, I mean, I don't know, but you guys sounds like you might've been a little bit different, but I wasn't like focusing on like who I was listening to. And I I would just kind of, you would just hear whatever you heard at a store or they're here or whatever, or what your parents were playing, you know, at home. Um, I wasn't going out and like seeking out, you know, new music at nine years old or whatever. Um, but uh but my brother is three years older than me and you know he was into a lot of that stuff you know uh, you know all those all those bands that i just mentioned and that's kind of a little bit how, of how i got introduced to it but honestly it wasn't even it wasn't until like i would say maybe i was in college that i really kind of went back and revisited a lot of that stuff stuff that i had never really spent a lot of time with i knew existed but i never like sat down and really listened to like full albums and stuff like that so it was actually much later in my life that i i kind of discovered a lot of stuff but it's kind of strange because even though it was later that i listened to a lot of this stuff because i because i have a time frame of when it came from there is still this kind of strange bit of nostalgia attached to yeah. it you know oh yeah so that's yeah. kind of interesting even though I wasn't really listening to a lot of that at the time it kind of having that time stamp on there kind of you know makes you think back of like oh I was nine ten years old when this album came out and am like holy shit I was...
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was nine years old when this album came out
2: um but yeah so I, what was my point um <laughs> uh, I don't know but yeah I mean that's uh, uh where was it oh but i was talking about um Soundgarden's earlier stuff um yeah you know, like in particular uh bad motorfinger and and i mean even just the which was their the album that just came out 3 years before uh mm-hmm. super unknown and that album is so much different i mean like there's such a yeah. huge leap yeah. there stylistically uh between bad motorfinger bad motorfinger and and super unknown
0: there there really is. Yeah. That, I mean, that's one of the things one of the reasons why I love that album and what I think makes it great is you can see the enormous step forward from Bad Motorfinger to Super Unknown. I mean yeah. the songwriting is oh yeah just you know leaps and bounds better. I mean not that Bad Motorfinger is a bad album. It's a great rock album with, with lots of good, you know, metal songs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the but, key metal. Yeah. But like S- super unknown is different, is way different. And way you know, different.
2: It, it's not metal. Yeah, <laughs> no, really. You know?
0: It's it's hard rock in places. Right. I mean, there are some songs where you could maybe make the case that it's closer to metal, like, like Mailman. Fourth of July or yeah. Fourth yeah. of yeah. July. Yeah. But it's two really of my favorite of like, songs um, on the album. <laughs> yeah, and but it's really kind of a mix of, you know, hard rock and sort of psychedelic rock. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Sure. And, psychedelic. and that is not at all what what uh bad motorfinger was yeah right? yeah bad Motor
2: finger didn't have really hardly any of that kind of psychedelic kind of feel to no. it yeah
0: i mean rusty cage
1: at points to me hints yeah to what's to come right that's yeah. one song on there but like um you know a lot of the other songs on on bad motorfinger are just yeah they're just and that, they just I, come they're just coming at you
2: and and like you know like mike said like i, I that's a good album i mean I really i still really like Bad Motorfinger, I think it's a really yeah, good album. but it, really. it but it is it's it is interesting how different, uh, yeah, their follow-up Super Unknown was, you know, just because. yeah, I mean
0: everything is sort of dialed up to eleven on on um Super Unknown, right? Yeah. I mean the it, not again, not that the melody lines on Bad Motorfinger are bad, but the melody lines on right. the vocal melody lines on on Super Unknown are just gorgeous. I mean, Black Hole Sun sound, almost sounds like something the Beatles would write for Exactly. You, know? you
1: took the words right out of my mouth. The, the Black Hole Sun is like uh, yeah, it's like a, a a Beatles track written by an alternative 90s band. I mean, yeah. it's it's but I I, mean, it, I gravitated toward that because of that reason like yeah, my yeah. whole life.
0: And I, I think that was why it was such a huge hit. I mean, yeah. the sound, the guys in Soundgarden even Chris Cornell didn't think that that song was going to be like an enormous hit. I mean, when he wrote right. it, he thought it was really strange and he wasn't even sure he wanted to bring it to the other guys in the band and show it to them because he thought that they might not like it and he wasn't right. sure about it. And and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like it was the first um um, single that they put out either i was like number three or four that they put out on yep. that album and <laughs> yeah, so no, no one was really certain that that was going to be a huge hit but i think that's part of the reason why it was i mean number one it was the video yeah but also the, the, the and the song is brilliant right but that mm-hmm. that melody line is just so amazing right people yeah. just love love that it's and it it really hooks people in
2: it's kind of like a twisted dark like upside down take on a like a beatles song you know what i mean like yeah yeah And I was reading that. um, I think that and um, and head down in particular um, were heavily influenced by the Beatles, and in particular, actually, Ringo. They, I think, they said uh, more so than.
0: I don't know if you know, but head down is actually written by Ben Shepherd, and I always think of him sort of as like Soundgarden's Ringo because he's always got (laughs) like one of his own songs on the album. Not that they're bad. I love Ringo, by the way. You know, oh yeah, getting down on Ringo, but um, but yeah, it's it's funny because you know he's definitely a he's a fan of the beatles and and uh you know i'm sure that influence comes through in that song because he wrote all of that right
1: yeah and it's black Hole sun too i mean the other the other draw for me was always you know and i guess we could get into the lyrics all day about you know with a lot of these songs but black hole sun is is as far as the lyrics go always kind of blew my mind like um the chorus, you know, black hole sun, won't you come and wash away the rain? To me, it was about like, you know, I, I hope the the freaking sun explodes and, and we get to start over, you know, it was always so, and then, and then, and then coupled with the surreal video. And so for me, Soundgarden, my introduction to Soundgarden was this video. So, you know, Luke, you said you've got an older brother. We've talked about, I have an older sister They're, You know, she's, she's quite a bit older than me. Um, this, this, you know, Soundgarden, Nirvana, those sorts of things were not things that she ever like would have pushed on me at all. Um, but I, I picked up Soundgarden from the Black Hole Sun video, probably a year, two years after it came out and it was simply that fact you know i was like a 10 11 year old boy and i saw this and i was just like holy shit what is this <laughs> and it and it and i did like the beatles at the time you know that was something you know my mom was obviously the age where the beatles were big in her life and and my sister liked the beatles so it was they had a huge influence and so so hearing that sort of sound you know with those the 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 uh, effects that were on the guitar that kind of were reminiscent as well as the kind of melody that was reminiscent coupled with the surrealist um you know freaking video and the, and the weird lyrics. And like, I mean, it just blew my mind. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, and then you get into the, to the, the vocals of Chris Cornell and the vocal range. Right. And so one of the things about Chris Cornell is, I mean, his vocal range was on full display in super unknown and he's got like a four octave range or plus, and, and there's not a lot of people, not just within rock, but without, you know, you know what I mean? Like there's not a lot of people on the planet that can sing within the range that Chris Cornell could have sang in at the time.
0: Right. Um, well, he could and, still do it like almost 20 years later as well. I it's mean, crazy. I, I remember going to see them, I think it was like 2012 or something. So, you know, almost 20 years after Sound or after Super Unknown was recorded. And I was sitting in this huge arena watching them and they're playing songs from super unknown. And I'm look, turning to my friend and going, is it like, is it 1994? Right yeah. Like, <laughs> it sounds the same. Like, That's awesome. and he did it so effortlessly. I don't know if you've you know, paid attention or what, closely, like videos of him singing or seeing it in concert. I mean, it doesn't look like he's even pushing very hard. Like, it no. doesn't look like he had hmm. to strain at all to do that. And it's so no. amazing.
1: It just kind of like comes from his gut and it just happens. Yeah. 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 He's it's, a one of the greats. I
0: mean, for me, you know, one of the best rock vocalists of all time. Like,
1: see, it, I I I could, I mean, I I really like Mike Patton. Um I, I'm not but the thing is I wouldn't say I'm a huge fan of any of 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 Mike Patton's like bands or his solo stuff to the point where I'm like I love it as as opposed to like Soundgarden where I'm like, you know, they were a whole package you know yeah. they had they had all of it whereas is uh as as you know mike Patton and a lot of his bands you know it's one or two songs here and there um
0: yeah i was i was thinking about it earlier today you know soundgarden to me is kind of like a super group you know all the guys are, are so good yeah and it, it's something you would put together with, with guys from other bands but they were all just right there together i mean yeah matt cameron is an amazing drummer ben oh, yeah. shepherd doesn't get his due from a lot of people but if you ask bass players like they're like yeah that he he's what makes soundgarden yeah. so interesting yeah and know, came... obviously there's chris cornell
2: and shepherd yeah. kind of came in a little bit later to the group he right and yeah kind of changed the whole dynamic really didn't he yeah
0: yeah they had um they had a different bass player at first i think his name was Hiro yamamoto mm-hmm. yeah. yeah he was a friend of kim thale and um you know, I, I think he just decided he didn't want to be, uh, you know, touring and doing that sort of lifestyle and left the band. Um, and I don't know exactly when Ben Shepard came in. I mean, it was before Bad Motorfinger, but I don't know. Yeah, how much yeah.
2: I would say before. I would say it was probably in between
1: Ultra Mega OK and Bad Motorfinger, probably.
0: So so as far so let's let's
1: talk about grunge. OK, you guys want I, to talk about grunge? Talk about grunge. Sure. So
0: I, I have thoughts on grunge. <laughs>
1: So the grunge timeline, you know, if you wanted to break it down, really the first full length quote unquote grunge album that came out was Soundgarden's debut album. And then after that, you start getting, you start getting your, your Nirvana and you start getting, um, uh, um, you know, more bands after that, I guess, I guess if you wanted to include, um, uh, mother love bone you know that would be that would be like 88 i well, think you
0: can, it was, you can go but, even even further back Then this will show like how much i'm into this era of music because oh, i read, read books on this stuff so here like, he goes the,
2: mike just take over for the rest of the show <laughs> <year>. take over <laughs> take over
0: but well, the people who you know lived through that era generally as the first like grunge band or what they would call you know the first band of that movement or whatever is a band called green river mm-hmm. which no one's ever heard of unless you lived in seattle i have that. not nope And it it had, I think, members of Mud Honey and Pearl Jam in it. Okay. Um, Some of the the guitarists. And when was that? And and that was like in the mid 80s. Okay. I would say it was like somewhere between 85 to 87 or something that they existed. Okay. Maybe a little bit later. And, you know, some of the members broke off from there and became Mother Lovebone. And then, you know, that Mm -hmm. didn't work out, obviously. Um, Yeah. And then they became Pearl Jam, right? When they found Eddie Vedder. Right, right, but right. you know, the first like band who was considered the part of that movement, and I, I don't know how many like singles or records they may have put out as Green River. Maybe they, they may not have put out anything. But that was like the first band that people were like, "Oh, this is the grunge movement or whatever." Okay. But as to whether or not that's an applicable name, I don't know. Yeah, and
2: and so where did <laughs> exactly. that come from? Who who decided? you know what, we're going to create, we're going to call this a whole new genre of music and we're going to call right. it grunge, you know? I
0: mean, as, as far as I know, it was basically created by the media and like... Um, yep, something
2: know, to label la- post-punk yeah, and, metal kind of fusion.
0: Yeah. And some of the like small time labels who were trying to get buzz around it and whatnot, you know, they come up with slang terms and whatnot. And then <laughs> the, the media would, would hear it and run away with it, right? But then the problem with it was that None of those bands really agreed with that idea. I mean, right, not exactly. the They didn't care, yeah. really, exactly. but they didn't really agree that that was a good name for anything. That, that it made sense, and also, then it just became this thing where all those bands from that era and that location were lumped in together, right?
2: Yeah, wasn't it more of a regional thing? It was. I mean, it was more yeah. of like a Seattle, yeah, kind of yeah. you are saying, scene. oh,
0: the the Seattle sound and right. its grunge and right. all that, and it's yeah. it's it's annoying because uh, to me, anyway, because. Grunge. You know, like Kurt Cobain didn't agree with that he would roll his eyes and like mm, stop right. interviews when people would would bring that up. He was just like, that's yeah. dumb. And, you know, if you ask like um, Jerry Cantrell from Alice in Chains, he always thought it was stupid and didn't understand why his band was being labeled that way. Because he's like, we're right. a metal band or metal. <laughs> Basically. And, yeah. And like, I remember reading an interview with him when um, Alice in Chains got back together with their new singer in like the late 2000s. Mm -hmm. and uh he said they put out an album and he went into a a music store and saw it and it was in this metal section he was like finally finally you know what we are right because you know in in 2008 or whatever there's no grunge section anymore because no one uses that term right because it doesn't make any sense right it doesn't mean anything really yeah i mean i I still I I,
2: i still use that term Bec- just to kind of group together like all of those bands that we've talked about, you know, sure. because right. for, for, you know, right or wrong, that's how they, that's what they kind of fell into.
0: Right. It was an uh, era that, that right. label,
2: you
1: know, it was an era. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I, it's more of an era. It's more of an era of like nineties alternative rock essentially, <laughs> you know, kind of like in a way.
1: Right. I mean, I, I could split off each one of these bands into, into, into much more applicable categories to, like to me right. you know like even as like like you know we're talking about Soundgarden right now i mean to me especially Soundgarden's first couple albums is post punk and metal i mean like right. i get crazy like fugazi vibes out of the first couple albums from from Soundgarden not you know not some weird i certainly would relate them closer to fugazi or even just straight up metal than i would say Nirvana, you know right, what I mean, right, like, right. and that's that's the most ridiculous thing about it to me is that they don't have anything to do with one another. Right? Like Alice in Chains and and Stone Temple Pilots might be like I could see you drawing a parallel between those two bands, but when you start getting into like Soundgarden and Nirvana, and to me, Nirvana is the epitome of quote unquote grunge. I mean, none of them sound alike, right. so it's like you're you're really just kind of grasping at straws.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was just like this catch-all term. I think it was based exactly. on the time and the place. You know, all these bands yep. came out of Seattle, uh, save for the one you mentioned, um, Stuntable Pilots, which came out of San right. Diego at the same time. But you know, it was all these bands out of Seattle, and they just—it was a movement of guys yep. working together to make it in music. And some of it, I guess, you could you could call it similar in that they were rock bands. You know.
1: Yeah, right. right. But they, they played they played a similar type of rock and roll music, yeah. that was but, from you know, the East Coast or West Irvana Coast.
0: Doesn't sound anything like Pearl Jam. No. Pearl Jam doesn't sound anything like no. Allison Chains. No. Right. I mean, right. It doesn't make sense.
2: Yeah, but. it's interesting because Soundgarden was actually they weren't they one of the first bands to really like from that from that kind of region or you know from Seattle to sign to like a major label. Oh yeah. But it took them. Yeah longer to really mm-hmm. kind of uh get the notoriety that i mean like yeah. for a long time there it was like you know like the kings of the seattle music scene were you know pearl jam and nirvana and right. they had become ultra you know ultra popular and yeah. i mean it actually by early 1994 so just a few months you know before uh super unknown came out um both both bands You know both pearl jam and nirvana were kind of uh, like kind of retreating seemed to be kind of retreating from that overwhelming you know fame and kind of you know and 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 then on you know unfortunately you know just a month after uh super unknown came out i mean cobain you know died and um i mean and that just kind of changed changed things too um but yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting that like, you know, those those two top bands of that area uh, and of, of that kind of music scene were both kind of taking it, wanting to take a step back at the time that Soundgarden was going full force, you know, right, you know, forward and you know, not not only wanting to kind of like you know take embrace the moment and the opportunity, but kind of uh, go beyond that too, you know.
1: It's funny too, that you mentioned that because, um, so I was, I was watching an interview, uh, with basically Soundgarden right at the time that super unknown came out. So super unknown came out literally exactly a month before Kurt Cobain died. And, um, so they were obviously, you know, super unknown comes out, it's their, it's their fourth album. And they are within that month, start doing tours and press and, and all kinds of stuff. And so inevitably the conversation for them frequently turned to, okay, uh, the status of, of, of grunge music and music from Seattle is now that, you know, the lead singer of, of Nirvana has killed himself. Um, you know, what does that mean for you guys? And in the interviews that i that i saw and the, and the things that chris said you know he's he's almost you know and, and the rest of the band too they're all they're they're always basically like that's a different band that's a different person that's a different group like we are not just like just like we just had this whole conversation about grunge they they basically said we're saying that at the time this is not uh you're you're trying to lump us all together we are not them they are yeah. not us we have nothing to do with one another. Stop asking us these questions. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of. Are you going
0: to go ask uh, like Bruce Springsteen about Tom Petty? Like yeah.
1: exactly, it's kind of a weird
2: question to ask. Like, as if it like, I mean, sure, yeah, it's tragic, but like, how does it directly relate to you doing, you right. know, your your thing as your band? You know, like, what is, you know, that's just kind of weird.
0: Yeah, and it's just one of those things. Like, that's just media right. for you. I mean, this is yeah. their that's their job, and they they want to drum up you know, controversy or a yeah. soundbite or something they can print on the front of a magazine. And at the time that's what they were looking for. And, you know, I can see why um you know, Kurt Cobain in particular hated the media so much and would yeah. just kind of crap all over interviews, you know, because he got the same question like every time. Like and, and then I'm sure for Soundgarden there for a while it was the same stuff. For yeah. that for all of nineteen ninety four of like, Well how yeah. do you relate to Nirvana? Well, we knew them. Like yeah, exactly. Like we weren't best friends or anything. We didn't live in a house together, right? Yeah, we didn't buy we didn't buy a house together.
2: I did read right. though. I, I did read though that uh, Cobain actually, uh, uh, Soundgarden was one of the few kind of bands from that you know that was lumped into that genre that he really liked, um, and that so there's a whole history behind uh, Soundgarden and uh, Sub Pop records. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that at all. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So basically, uh, you know, one one of the guys that was like um, uh, one of the co-founders like funded some of uh, Soundgarden's earlier works, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so then he went on and created this this label, and then um, because of you know Soundgarden's connection with this label cobain signed nirvana to it and um yeah it's just kind of interesting i don't know just a little side note
0: yeah i mean subpop was really big in in seattle um and helped out quite a few of those bands you know they're yeah. all related to it in some way or had put out you know some projects or worked with someone who was putting out a record on subpop so yeah it was really instrumental to launching a lot of those bands i i just i love everything about this album you know and <laughs> well thanks for joining us everybody we'll see you next week <laughs> there's so much good stuff to talk about on this album i mean you know we talked about it a little bit before like there being sort of a super group right but the the level yeah. of musicianship on that album is just it's so over the top it Each is Each one of them was at the top of their game i mean the drumming is flawless the guitar sounds and riffs are are perfect the bass playing makes a huge difference in the sound of the band right the He's yeah, doing all kinds of stuff. Like if you listen to the chorus on "Fell on Black Days," he's not just playing the chords along with the guitarist, right? He's doing this weird no. thing, you know. And you listen to like the pre-chorus of uh, "Super Unknown," the su- the track "Super Unknown," and he's doing these weird little runs on the bass that are not following the guitar line, and it just makes it sound so all over the place. And that's what you know they were going for is let's do something unique and interesting. And right. um, yeah, you know, and obviously. Chris Cornell's vocals, you know, he's yeah. one of the best. So you put it all together and it just, it sounds so great.
2: Yeah. I think one of the things about this album that, you know, I don't know how much I I've realized it before, you know, kind of revisit, I mean, it's one that I go back to a lot and I just kind of like casually listen to because I'm f- very familiar with it. Um, but, you know, in preparation for the, this episode, I really kind of, I, I listened to it a little more a little intently. And, um, yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's something, it, it has this, um, <laughs> it has like this dark energy, you know, to it. Yeah. Um, it's very apocalyptic. I mean, down to, I mean, you look at just the album cover and you look at the, the, I mean, just like the music video for, you know, Black Hole Sun and stuff like that. And I mean, and just collectively as an album, it has, it's, it is the like dark, But, um, at the same time, there's kind of like, it's not like a depressing album. It's not like a, like a, It's heavy, but it's not heavy, you know, and it doesn't have a weight to it where it's like, Oh God, this is a fucking drag to listen to. Like it's, (laughs) it's, it's like, um, it's still very like, um, lively and fun to listen to, but the subject matter of the, of the tracks are are very dark and, you know, a lot of it seems to be about kind of just like the, uh, just how shitty, (laughs) like the every, everyday mundane day-to-day life is and. Like how the world kicks you in the ass you know and um but it kind of it's it, it approaches it in a way that is somehow uplifting if that makes sense i don't know you yeah know? like
0: the the feeling i get is that they're in acknowledging all of that stuff but giving like two gigantic yeah it's like, like fuck universe, you right? yeah
2: exactly yeah <laughs> yeah
0: like, and this so sucks like... but fuck off right? <laughs>
2: yeah and I think that's what's so unique and great about it is that it's this dark it's this dark heavy album but it's also a lot of like fun to listen to it's very oh yeah like I said it's very lively and and a lot of great energy on it um so I think that that's you know it is really unique for to, for an album to have all of those things kind of going on at the same time
0: Yeah I agree I, I wanted to mention yeah. one thing you mentioned the cover and I never knew this for the longest time I don't know if it's obvious to everyone else but the cover of that album has got that guy screaming on it. That's Chris Cornell. I yeah, never. Right. I didn't know that when I was a kid. The screaming. <laughs> yeah, the screaming guy. But uh, I mean, because they've got it kind of stretched and what. Right. Out,
2: but, right. Yeah, it's interesting. Going back to the it's, distorted themes of like. Yeah. Exactly. You know, yeah. yeah.
1: I uh, I this album. So I, full disclosure, I listened to this album a lot this week, and same. It 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 had an effect on my mood in a lot of ways. I mean, it, it really did. I mean, it's, it's not, you guys are absolutely right with, with your assessment just, just a minute ago, but it definitely, um, it definitely deals with some things that are, that are, uh, you know, dark and, and, and frustrating. And, and I know that, um, you know, I've, I've heard Chris Cornell say that, you know, for this album, you know, not everything that he wrote was, you know, he wrote most of the songs on the album, not all of them, but he, as far as the lyrics go, but, um, some of them are metaphorical, you know, some of them are just, you know, stories and, and some of them are, are literal. They're things that he himself is drawing from and, and it, and it switches back and forth, you know, right. from song to song and, and line to line and sometimes word to word, you know, it's, uh, whether it's about him or whether it's just in general, um, but it definitely has a, it's, it's, it's definitely brooding and it's definitely down. Um, it, but it's, it's, it's not oppressively down, you know, it's, right. um, yeah. Spoon Man. I mean, to me, Spoon Man's back the back. most, yeah, <laughs> to me, Spoon Man's the most uplifting song on the track. It's about, it's about the, this, this happy dude that plays the spoons and <laughs>
0: yeah. on like, and like, uh, uh, he was um, a, he was a street performer. In, yeah. yeah. Like the artist and, the Spoon and, Man. Yeah. The Spoon yeah. Man. Yeah. 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 I I uh one of the interesting things I think about uh, the Spoonman track is like I I totally agree with you like it's it's one that is the in the opposite direction of the others as far as being more like lighthearted and a sort of straightforward rock song you know yeah um and not dealing with loss and depression which a lot of those songs are um but Spoonman <laughs> actually came about because I don't know if you guys are aware of like uh, the the I think it was a Cameron Crowe film singles yeah. And mm-hmm. some of the guys from um, different bands in Seattle had formed to create the fake band in that movie. Right. And one of them was Jeff Ament, the the bass player from Pearl Pro Jam. Jam. Yeah. And for that movie, he made up like a fake set list of songs for this fake band in the movie. One of the song names that he wrote down was Spoon Man. <laughs> and Chris Cornell saw it and was like, <laughs> just thought it was funny. So he took it and made a whole song out of it. Like that's where Spoonman came from because he that's knew right, what Spoonman yeah. was because he lived in, in Seattle, right? He knew about artist the Spoonman. And so he just right. made a whole song about it. It's hilarious. I'll it's be
2: great. honest. Like, I mean, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that track. And a lot of people like it. And it was like one of their singles, right? but Spoonman is actually probably one of the few tracks that I'm okay with just kind of like skipping past for whatever yeah. reason. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's because I've heard it so much. It was one of, you know, it was like, a... I mean,
0: it was the first single. It was yeah. all over the place when it came out. Yeah. I think it was the first single. I'm pretty sure. I but think yeah. so.
2: I, I mean, if, I don't know if we want to go into like personal favorite tracks of this album. Um, sure. But I do I it. Mean, I I mean uh, there's really w- w- for whatever reason one stands out to me. I love uh and I don't even know why but I love uh Fresh Tendrils. That's mm. like one of my That's favorite tracks. I mean, and this is you know you're talking about a favorite track in a 15 track album with like where there's really not a single song that is just like, you know, your uh, shit, you know. So I mean, th- I I love Fresh Tendrils um yeah, I mean, uh another one is uh I mean, Head Down's great as well. Yeah. Um I mean, do you guys have you know some favorites and and why they're your favorites or anything like that?
0: Yeah. I definitely do. Yeah. I was thinking about it um in the run up to the, to this uh recording. You know, I, I my favorite songs on that album have changed over the years. You know, when I was 13, it was um I think the first couple of tracks. I loved uh, mm-hmm. "Let Me Drown" and "My Wave." Yeah. My Wave was probably my favorite one when I was thirteen. Yeah. I just loved the sound of that guitar when it first came in, um, and then it probably moved to um, "Super Unknown." The track "Super Unknown" for a long time because I just loved the way that track sounds and the the lyrics and everything, and the way he's just like screaming it out. Um, super but unknown. nowadays, you yeah, said "Super, super unknown. unknown." "Super Unknown," and but nowadays it's definitely the um, the last track. Like, like suicide. suicide. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. I mean, for me, that's like one of the best closing tracks on any rock album ever. Like, yeah, it's really just good. the way it starts out with the, the drums and the bass. And then, you know, they one of the great things I love about this album, and this is getting into like technical recording stuff, but they do a lot of double tracking on a lot of things, like on the guitars and especially on the vocals. And it's something that I did with a lot of the bands that I played with after this. Um, basically because Soundgarden did it. Now, they, they're not the only ones that do this sort of thing. I mean, it's its a common practice, but it works really well on Super Unknown and specifically on tracks like, um, like Suicide. Like when he first takes it up into the upper register and says, you know, with eyes of blood and bitter blue, how I feel for you, like he's screaming it out and the very next set of lines after that is she lived like a murder how she flies so sweetly and he's still screaming it out but that's double tracked he's singing it twice the exact same way and they're panning it left and right Hmm. so it just makes it sound so huge and every time Hmm. i listen to that i turn i turn that track up as loud as i can at the time (laughs) unless you know (laughs) kids are sleeping or whatnot but it just it makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up because it's just so great and it makes it sound so enormous when they do that stuff and he was one of the best at it because he could sing those crazy high lines belting yeah. it out like that exactly the same way to the point where it sounds like one giant voice. Like yeah. when you listen to it, you can hear that it's different in the left and right sides, but it's so close hmm. and it just sounds That's crazy. great.
1: That's great. Um, for me, you know, I don't have, I don't have a story necessarily to, to compare with that, but the, for me, I, I really like mailman. Um, I think the chorus on that is just, is is just it hits again his vocals um the repeated line you know over and over uh just it's one of those songs it's like hard rock and then it comes into the chorus and it's like um it's just got this beautiful chorus that's just kind of uh both depressing and and beautiful that i love and then uh and and fourth july too which is like uh, m- maybe the most metal song on yeah, the on the album definitely. it's just like Sludge almost, you know, yeah. Durr, yeah. Durr, yeah. Durr. <laughs> but rock. it's yeah, but it's it's got a, another great chorus, um, and it's it's got some some cool lyrics too. Um, but I also really love The Day I Tried to Live, oh, yeah. and uh, and and you know, that's another another that's single
0: really cool uh, guitar riff on that one,
1: yeah, I it's got that. some great some great guitar, um, and and one of the things that I think is really interesting about the day I tried to live is, you know, I was listening to it the other day and I was like, what, you know, so we've, we've talked about, um, I I guess I'll take it even one step further. Uh, we, you know, it's no secret that we we've, we've tried to distance these guys as best we can from, from grunge, but it's no secret that, you know, these guys that were in these bands, um, that kind of all originated around the same time, you know they've they've not fared well in terms of longevity um unfortunately and um and part of that is is you know mental health some of it was was drugs um and so to me one of the things you know we've we've said that this is an album that has some serious some serious connotations and and some somewhat depressing connotations but it it uh it it comes through in a lot of ways on the album pretty overtly, but the day I try to live, I think is a really interesting song in that it seems like it's a depressing song. You know, it's the day I tried to, you know, the day I tried to live <laughs> just the title itself is, is seems like it, it It indicates depressing. Um, but it's, it's a really interesting track in that, um, vocally, uh, lyrically it's, it's Chris Cornell basically said it's, it's about what it, what it really means is, is, you know, he's introverted. He's, he's, he's a type of uh, person that's, that's very quiet and, and withdrawn. And you can see that if you've ever watched a, an interview with him or if you've ever heard him speak, like he's not, you know, a, a look at me type of guy, which a lot of these guys weren't. Um, but the song itself is about uh, as, as he said is about really the fact that um, it's about a, a guy again, maybe him made, maybe metaphorically. Um, but it's about a guy who essentially said, you know, wakes up one day and says, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna live this day like everybody else. Like I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna, I'm just gonna put on the face of a normal person and stop being this like sheltered introverted, like leave me alone type of person. And so the, the whole song is really about the day I, he tried to live the day he tried to go out and be, with the other people and, and how that, and how that felt and how that, uh, and how that, uh, how that worked out for him. And, you know, then it's got the lyric, you know, one more time around, you know, one more time around might do it, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe tomorrow, you know, I'll, I'll come out and, and try this again. And, and maybe that'll, maybe that'll fix me. Maybe that, you know, maybe I won't be introverted anymore. And for whatever reason, that whole thought, that whole idea of like, it it hit me like it, it kind of it kind of that whole thing that whole idea basically summed up in a lot of ways for as much as these guys didn't want to be lumped together it it lumped them all together for, together for me and was kind of like these guys you know in a lot of ways and chris cornell obviously specifically you know they weren't going out looking for fame like these these weren't you know these weren't the 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 uh, hair metal guys of five years prior, you know, these, these guys were, were trying to be artists and they were trying to to put their music out there because they felt passionate about it and they really didn't want the rest of it. And to some, I mean, to some extent they did, you know, like nobody's going to be like, no, I don't want more money. No, I don't want more fame. No, I don't want to do, you know, no, I don't want to do what I love for a living sort of thing. But at the same time, they didn't want all that. And, uh, and the day I like the day I tried to live really resonated really resonated with me in the fact that I feel like it was it was really Chris Cornell saying I keep trying you know I'm just like it, it just it it leveled with me in the fact that he was just a dude like he was just a guy that was like you know I I really am just me and I try just like everybody else tries and sometimes I can't and sometimes I can and it sucks (laughs) and you know what I mean and it was just man and hit like I I list I read that and about how how he wrote that and and uh and um
0: yeah it's definitely it's it's an interesting track in that way I mean it's the the last line says and i learned that i was a liar just like you which <laughs> yeah. like i wonder if if that kind of speaks to his state of mind in that like not everyone is out there living their life in a depressed state like faking it right a right. lot of people are but like to him maybe that's what he saw you know because right. he was in the middle of it i mean you look at look at the tracks on this album let me drown <laughs> fell on yeah. black days like these <laughs> yep. these songs are about depression and he yeah. you know clearly had issues with that his whole life to be writing songs like this. I mean, the last track is called like suicide. Right. Uh, I know, I know what that track is actually about, but the idea that he, you know, took that story and related it to himself about suicide, like goes to his state of mind. I mean, this is also after he saw, he was good friends with Andy Wood from mother love bone who died, you know, I mean, he had a lot of reasons to not be happy. Um, yeah. In addition to just having, you know, some, some mental health problems. Yeah. And, uh, yeah it you read those lyrics and it definitely speaks to that state of mind like he was in the thick of it there and yeah. whenever I listen to this album you know it's also sort of depressing for me in a way because I feel bad for him you know like I know exactly. what end, I know what the end of his story is right and I look at these tracks yeah. and I read the lyrics and,
1: and I, I think that was man. that was where I really um I think that's where it really got me this week you know reading that and thinking about that it's like you you know we're we're four years, you know, he's four years gone now. I think it was 2017. Yeah. Um, And knowing that that's how it all ended up for him after Jesus decades, you know, decades of struggling. Um, And, and uh, it's, it's just really, it's just a bummer. It's really sad.
0: Yeah. And, you know, they don't even really have all the details there. I mean, it sounds like it could have been accidental, but like, he was also he may have accidentally killed himself doing something that's very dangerous and likely to kill you. So it's like it right. wasn't really all there when it comes to that. Like he was making decisions right. that were detrimental, and unfortunately, the worst happened. So yeah, it's a, it's a downer. But I, I'll say, like you know, the, the other side of the album that I really like is this sort of like I mentioned earlier, this qu- sort of like screaming into the void, where it's like, yeah, this all this yeah. stuff is terrible, right. but. But I'm not going to let it get me down. Right. Like there's some some of that too. The yeah. day I tried to live, I think super unknown. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, there's the track is about that. There's you know, an um, there's
2: an empowerment there of just like yeah. kind of like embracing embracing that you know and just like yeah. and right. like you said you know fuck you my wave <laughs> for sure
0: is like you know keep it off my wave like he's, right. eh, trying his yeah. best to live his life and not let things get him down, but it's hard.
1: Yeah, I think I think of anything, you know, this sort of this sort of idea, you know, has been with them since the beginning. But I think it just with their style change kind of on this album, it becomes a little more personal um, is is really what it comes yeah, down to. Definitely. Yeah,
0: I mean, he had a he had a um, reputation, I think, in some, you know, magazines and things that like for their earlier albums that most of the songs or the lyrics he would write were about sex. And there was a lot of them. There were a lot of songs about sex, and I think I, I don't know if that's fair or not because there wasn't a lot of tracks like that on Bad Motorfinger. But
1: Could, can I ask you a question? Yeah, which which tracks specifically,
0: just for my own notes, <laughs> are about sex? Yeah, no, not I didn't mean on on Super Unknown. I think I know, I know, but I for my own research. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't think I can name you one off the top of my head, right. but well, i think I'll like do I said, some, it was I'll do some digging. Like, media magazines and stuff would say that about their lyrics um prior to this album Um, i don't know if it was really fair or not but when you when you you know look at the lyrics and you you go through some super unknown i i don't really see any of that there and i think that's you know at least one area where he really expanded out into different ideas and things and um, tried really hard to to come up with something unique and stayed away from tropes like that i mean if that's even fair criticism for some of the earlier work and to be fair you know they're they're really early stuff he's a really young guy and yeah you know, if he wants to talk about sex then he
1: can. well and they were as, as with a lot of these bands they were born out of punk and and metal and and that sort of thing and i mean for me punk rock is just like anti-establishment and sex and drugs and that's like the three tenets of the whole thing like <laughs> yeah fuck you i'm gonna do what i want sort of thing and so i, I you know th- there was no i if anything i i would say the to me the one and only true tenant of grunge rock is that it is personal like these guys the guys that were writing grunge if you want to call it that were going beyond the movements that came before them and actually saying, no, I'm going to write things that are about me and that are personal to me and that kind of convey how I feel. Right. Whereas, whereas, uh, you know, the punk rock and the post-punk guys were doing that, but they were, but how they felt was mostly just fuck you. I mean, that's, that's really all it was.
2: And I, and I think a lot of like, like you were saying with, with these bands ha- having that kind of more emotional side of, I mean, I think that did, uh, influence a lot of like future
1: musicians and stuff
2: yeah. that turned into the whole emo kind of
1: uh, yeah. phase, you know, like blind melon, <laughs> blind the melon first again.
0: emo band, blind we, melon.
1: the first, the oh. first emo band. Are we going to do a whole episode on blind melon or what? Uh, we have to, but,
0: <laughs> but not just about that one song. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: oh my God. The one, the one blind melon song that 30 that 37 to 45 year old men know
0: <laughs> they were a really good band it's disappointing because i wonder what else they could have done right but yeah it was pretty short-lived
1: another tragic story
0: yep <laughs> stay away from that heroin yeah it doesn't work out well
1: it is not good for you um what else to say about the album any any other notes that you guys had any um, any wh- closing thoughts
0: yeah, I'll bring it back around to, to one interesting thing. I was listening to you in the intro, and you mentioned uh, you know Soundgarden's name and Super Unknown, how they're both like mashups of words. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm such a big fan of Soundgarden that I actually know where their name came from. Sure. Um, there's actually a place in Seattle in a in a park there that's called the Soundgarden. And nice. It's this sort of like sculpture thing where when the wind blows through, it makes sound and stuff. And um, That
1: sounds like such a Seattle thing.
0: Yeah. And that's where where they got it from. And um, I don't really know where Super Unknown comes from. I do. Do you? So do I. Let's hear it.
1: Andy, do it. So Super Unknown um, was actually just... (laughs) It's a hilarious story. Um, Was actually just uh, something that Chris Cornell thought he saw written on a piece of paper. He just like glanced at some notes or something somebody had written and was like what does that say super unknown oh no it says this other thing it said super like,
2: clown i think it's a super clown or something like yeah
1: so it's it's, it's it's something completely like, different I oh man i'm glad they weren't like super, super clown yeah, <laughs> Super Clown. why did they not
2: so, call it super clown? <laughs> I, know. I, mean, I don't know <laughs> the
1: worst. <laughs> and so
0: i don't want to have to tell people that my favorite band is super clown <laughs> know, super I just, clown i just don't want to
1: so so he just he basically just made a mental note he's like that's a title and so they they used it and uh yeah he was, I was like, like
2: I, I know this can't possibly exist because like my brain just like rearranged these yeah. words. <laughs> right. so i right. was like i'm gonna use i'm gonna use this as our the title for our oh and i actually well, I think that, it helped that's kind of a trend influence. with
0: him then just like that's a trend with him just like seeing random things and then making yeah. art out of it because yeah. that's how he got spoon man too yes yeah. and,
1: and and I, I, the funny thing is we've talked about, you know, how some of these guys, some of these lyrics and things and, and stuff get really deep, but at the same time, you've got to, you've really got to realize these are, you know, like you said, with the, with the, the sex, like you said, Mike, with the sex music, um, <laughs> <laughs> these are, these are 20, 20, 25 year old guys, you know, these are young guys. They're not. I mean, I don't want to be disparaging, but in a lot of ways, we may be giving them more credit in some for some things than they really deserve. You know, they're just it's, some of it's just mash up stuff that they're like, yeah, right. that sounds cool. Like, right. I'm just going to run with it.
0: Yeah. I and mean, I, I think you mentioned like the lyrics to um, Black Hole Sun earlier, and there was no thought behind it. It doesn't mean right, anything. Right, According to right, Chris Cornell, anyway. Right. he said yeah. he just wrote a bunch of random phrases that he thought sounded cool. And there's a bunch of great lines in there. But yeah like, he he was asked over and over again what that what that song meant and he maintained the whole time that it was nothing <laughs> it was nothing Which, yeah you know and it just It's a of... great song right but yeah it, it sort of speaks to the fact that like some of it was just say hey, man let's throw it together and see what we get. Right.
1: That sounds cool as shit. You know, like you, you, you still like, you know, we make fun of new artists today that are, that were like, Oh my God, that's so dumb. Why did they write that? But at the same time, you know that why they wrote it, they wrote it because they, somebody said it and somebody else was like, that sounds cool as hell, man. Let's put it down. And that was it. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And you know, with any kind of art form, you know, that, you know, people create something, put it out there. There's always going to be people that analyze it. And, you know, look very deeply into it and come up with their own conclusions. And that, I mean, that's the great thing about any kind of art form is that, you know, right. everybody gets
1: something different from it, you know, it right. brings something to it them, of, of themselves. And that's why it's so hard to make art. That's why it's so hard to premeditate that you're going to make something successful right. because you can't ever guess what people are going to, what people are going to gravitate toward. You know what I mean? You can't assume that, that you, you know, you could, uh, a good example is like, is like for me is like fish. Okay. Fish is wildly popular, but.
2: I don't think I've ever heard of a fish song. I don't. If I have, I don't know like that I have.
1: <laughs> I have. And, 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 and they're, they're wildly popular and, 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 and they're, they're incredible musicians. They've all got like degrees yeah. in, in music and, and, and they're, they, they, they put things together in intricate and amazing ways but it doesn't speak to me. I'm not going to freaking listen to it, but somebody does. And so that's the amazing thing about all music and all art is that you, you can't predict what people are going to like. And you can't, you can't, you can't, um, you can't plan for it and you can't design it. You know, you just have to, it's, it's creative. It
2: I think it has to come from a, a natural place. You know what I mean? Right. A real place. Like in, in, I mean if you really try to manufacture something in this kind of artificial way I mean I would say most of the time it's not going to work.
1: And that's why and that's why one of the reasons that Soundgarden is so good is because they were incredibly talented musicians and I wouldn't say that they didn't care but they just their their heart was not in making things that everybody liked. Mm -hmm. Their heart was in just making good music, things that they like, things that they wanted to hear and things that their friends would like. And, and in doing so, and in, and in, and doing that the best they could, they made some things that were just exploded beyond what, what people thought was uh, possible. And I think,
2: and I think because, you know, you know, by, by 1993 or so, um, you know, they, they had a certain level of like, I mean, the people knew who they were and there was a little bit of a fan following and everything, but like um, they didn't have the pressure on them to really, you know, oh, what's your, what's the next album going to be? What's the, you know? And right. so they just kind of like, you know, they didn't, they didn't have a microscope on them in that sense. Um, and that allowed them the freedom to kind of just, you know I'd say fuck it we're going to change our whole approach and our you know essentially kind of change the the style almost the the style of, of you know musically of how they how yeah. they went about it
0: yeah for sure i mean I, I think if they were looking to do something that was a for sure you know guaranteed commercial success they may not have gone in some of these directions yeah they may mm-hmm. have stayed in sort of the hard rock groove that they were in with bad motor finger because it, it wasn't an unsuccessful album right, right. it was good they could have right. built on that right. and gone more in that direction um but this is it's quite a bit different and you know I, I sometimes i wonder if what they did here was a sort of reaction to some of you know the mega success they saw around them with different bands and going you know what like we don't really care about that. We want to make right. something that we love that yeah, we right. you know, really think is interesting. And this is what they came out with. And it still became a mega success. Yeah, right. you know?
2: Weren't they like, didn't they open for um, like Guns N' Roses and stuff? Like, uh, I believe they a- did. After Bad Motorfinger? Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. I think they may have. Even so they
2: probably, for... you know, they saw firsthand that level of, of fame and success and they were opening up for a band that, and the people that, you know, were in the audience, I mean, these were, I'm sure huge stadiums at that time for Guns yeah. N' Roses, the people that were there probably didn't even fucking know who they were, you know, and so they probably saw a little bit of that, like that level of kind of fame and success. And yeah.
1: Yeah. If they, if they, if they really wanted to be, you know, they could have easily said, at the turn of bad Motorfinger, they could have easily said, you know what? If we really want to take it to the next level, let's, let's emulate Nirvana. You know, Nirvana at that point had yeah. already blasted off, you know, but they, like you said, Mike, they took it the complete opposite direction. They were like, you know, fuck this. We're going to, we're going to continue to do what we do and we're going to do it even harder. We're going to, we're going to add more different time signatures. We're going to tune <laughs> our guitars even more. We're going to make Chris have to have, 15 different guitars when we play live so that he could just swap out guitars for every time, every song we play, because the tunings are all different. And, and, uh, and, and, and that's what they did. And it it was, it was, it worked. It's crazy that like, after how, you know, how
2: successful this album was, I mean, it was just three short years later that they disbanded, you know, yeah, (laughs) like, it's just kind of crazy by 1997, they had broken up. Right.
0: Yeah, but I I think people at that time, anyway, didn't maybe realize how long they had been together. Right. They'd been yeah. together I mean, since, what, down, 84? Yeah, it was very early on in the 80s. I mean, they had yeah. been around, like, those, those, you know, they had a different bass player and stuff. But those guys had been working together at that point for, like, you know, almost 15 years. And they yeah. were burned out, you know.
2: Yeah, I mean, it kind of goes back to our episode on Pink Floyd, where, you know, they reached that certain level of success with uh, Dark Side of the Moon, and, uh, and then it was just like, it seemed to just go downhill from there. And then and then it was by what, what year I mean, so the what Pink Floyd came out or uh, uh, Dark Side of the Moon came out in what 74 or 75. Um, but I mean, yeah. essentially, they were, you know, they were done by the early 80s. And yeah, yeah. It's there's something the to most... be said, I think about like, what six, what that level of success and fame and stuff kind of does. Um, yeah mike do you know the story about why they broke up
0: um as far as i know it was just that um they they wanted to take a break you know they were really burned out because of how long they had been doing it and you know there's a lot of pressure around that when they we come out with an enormous album like super unknown and then you follow it up with down on the upside which did pretty well as as well and they were t- touring non-stop and they were all over television and and the yeah. radio and i i think they had just taken it as as far as anyone could ever hope to take it when mm-hmm. you when you do something like this. And they also weren't, we talked about it earlier, they weren't the type of guys to crave, you know, super stardom and, and give a crap about that. So they were okay with walking away if they really wanted to. Um, so as far as I know, that was just kind of it. Not that they were doing it permanently, but at the time it seemed that way. They just sort yeah. of announced it. And I know for me personally, it was a heartbreaking day because... <laughs> I was, I was 16 and I lived in a small town, an area where they would never come through anyway. And I had never gotten to see them live. And I was like, well, that's it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So when they got back together and played Lollapalooza, I was, I was right there in the front.
2: Nice.
1: It's funny that you say that. um, But I've, I've had, I, uh, I I remember specifically my neighbor um, who's like a big punk rock guy. And we talk about music a lot. And I remember just, this isn't uh, Soundgarden related, but I remember him telling me a story that when he was, you know, he's probably around your age, Mike, that he remembers um, he he had an older brother who was super into into Nirvana and a lot of these bands and it got him into it. And um, he he was like, I remember the day that, that Kurt Cobain died, and he's like, I still he, he was like, I still think about it. He's like it it he's like it shattered my whole world. And and it's still you know it still sticks with me to this day and obviously um soundgarden got back together and and they did they did play more shows but nirvana you know kind of that was it and um and there's people there was a lot of teenage guys you know like us that you know love these bands that you know never got to see them play live or or all we know about them is the albums but somehow still they were able to speak to us in those ways so um yeah it's crazy
0: A lot of those things, I mean, shattered a lot of dreams for a lot of people, you know. But a huge part of a lot of young kids' identity was tied up in bands like Nirvana um, in the early '90s, wearing their t-shirts, going to their shows, and listening to their albums and hanging on their every word. Um, I even have a guitar here in my house. It's a a cream-colored Fender Stratocaster from the '90s that I bought at a pawn shop like decade or two ago and it on the back is carved into the metal it says uh it's like some kids initials with like the and it says like 1994 and it says i heart kurt cobain wow. <laughs> but but wow. i found it in a pawn shop. i was like clearly that kid was like and i'm done Yep. <laughs> you know yeah and it, it had a huge effect on a ton of people i remember it yeah. happening and watching it on television and just like being like whoa yeah, I, 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 it didn't it didn't affect me quite as much I wasn't a huge Nirvana fan but it was definitely like a moment in time I will never forget
1: I I think I don't have too much more to say about Super Unknown but I will say uh you know as we wrap up that um I think one of the reasons kind of goes back to the fact um kind of you know some of the things we talked about with the lyrics and and things like that with these bands um is that I I think young men, you know, especially in their, in their preteens and their teens, you know, are often, it's not, it's not really realized that, you know, through adolescence, just like anyone else, young men, you know, have go through all the crazy hormone changes and a lot of, (laughs) and a lot of different thoughts and feelings through that time. And, and, you know, a lot of these bands were you know, either overtly or, or, or somewhat, you know, subconsciously conveying that in their music. And, um, it was both cool and loud and and fun to listen to, but also, you know, the lyrics were super relatable and, and, um, you know, made you feel like I'm, I'm not, (laughs) I'm not crazy. Feeling sad sometimes, you know. I don't, you know, like this, this is not, uh, you know, these guys feel the same way and they're making, you know, platinum records and, and millions of dollars. You know, it's not all hair metal and, and, uh, and sex buses, you know. It's, <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, these guys, some of these guys are me. Yeah. And I, I think mean, that I was, that was it for I, a lot of people.
0: I think that that definitely applies to me. It's why, I mean, I I like the band regardless. I still listen to it now, right? I I love this album and and a lot of the bands from that era. But I think at the time that certainly would have been applicable to me. I was 13 years old. I'm listening to this album that's, you know, at once depressing and liberating. And it gives this impression of being incredibly defiant, which to a 13-year-old boy is is hard not to cling on to, right? And Yeah. uh, yeah, I mean, that's, I think it sums it up.
1: Yep, depressing, liberating, and defiant. That's the, I, this, those are three great adjectives to describe both a teenage boy and super, <laughs> super unknown. <funny. laughs>
0: sure.
1: All right.
2: Awkward silence.
1: We made it <laughs> an hour and a half. I I, I guess that's it, huh?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I think we kind of covered covered everything. Um, I mean, it, we had some closing thoughts there. Yeah. Um uh, Mike, I want to thank you for, for joining us. You brought a yeah, lot of, great. brought a lot yeah, to the it's conversation.
0: A it's a pleasure guys. I really um, enjoyed it. Yeah.
2: Um uh, if yeah, we'll have you back uh we'll have, have you back again soon for sure. Maybe
1: we'll next time we'll talk about something a, a little less heavy.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Maybe we'll talk about uh No Doubt. <laughs> no
0: doubt. <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't the hugest fan of No Doubt, but you know, I can read up. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh sounds good. Um, so next week, uh, we're going to go back to, um, a newer album. We're going to talk about a, a newer band, uh, called tops. Um, and, That's and all of their, one there, all caps, like the, like the baseball card. Um, and we're going to talk about their newest album from 2020. Uh, and, and I'm really excited about it. I, it's something I just, uh, discovered within the last month or so. And, and I kind of shared it with Luke and and we're going to, we're going to get some fresh perspectives on it um, because this is really the first, first either of us has ever listened to this band and the first um, you know, we've kind of really dived into the album. So it'll be, it'll be an interesting uh, discussion I think.
2: Yeah. I've only listened to the one song that you sent me. Um, I was too focused on, uh, on revisiting Soundgarden and Super Unknown and everything, but that's uh, that's next on the agenda for me. I'll, I'll be uh, consuming this album and taking notes and, uh, looking forward to talking about that next week.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And and then we're gonna, um, we've got, you know, some more guests lined up. We've got some more, some more exciting, um, topics to talk about, uh, and, uh, we've got some good stuff coming up. So, uh, thank you all for listening. Um, again, you can listen to us. I don't know where you're listening to us now, but you can listen to us on Spotify, anchor, uh, Apple podcasts. Um, Bunch of different places if you search for us, and uh,
2: yeah, we also please. have a Instagram page. Yes, which uh, you can find the recipes for the cocktails on there, and also yeah. you know there's a link out to uh, us on Spotify as well.
1: Yeah, and and some boudoir photos from Luke. Boudoir. <laughs> uh, get
2: upcoming.
1: that Burt Reynolds, yeah, get that Burt Reynolds <laughs> post down. Uh,
2: uh, all right, all right. Thanks all for right, listening, so, everybody.
1: We'll see you next all week. Right, we'll- See you next time. Thanks again, Mike. Thanks, Mike.
0: Yeah, no problem.
2: Thank you for listening to Sip and Spin with Luke and Andy. Cheers.